chapters 9 through 12 of Dr. Ox's experiment. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Dr. Ox's experiment by Jules Verne. Chapter 9, in which Dr. Ox and Eugene, his assistant, say a few words. Well, Eugene? Well, master, all is ready. The laying of the pipes is finished. At last. Now, then, we are going to operate on a large scale, on the masses. Chapter 10, in which it will be seen that the epidemic invades the entire town and what effect it produces. During the following months, the evil, in place of subsiding, became more extended. From private houses the epidemic spread into the streets. The town of Quiquendone was no longer to be recognized. A phenomenon yet stranger than those which had already happened now appeared. Not only the animal kingdom, but the vegetable kingdom itself became subject to the mysterious influence. According to the ordinary course of things, epidemics are special in their operation. Those which attack humanity spare the animals, and those which attack the animals spare the vegetables. A horse was never inflicted with smallpox, nor a man with the cattle plague, nor do sheep suffer from the potato rot, but here all the laws of nature seem to be overturned. Not only were the character, temperament, and ideas of the townsfolk changed, but the domestic animals, dogs and cats, horses and cows, asses and goats, suffered from this epidemic influence, as if their habitual equilibrium had been changed. The plants themselves were infected by a similar strange metamorphosis. In the gardens and vegetable patches and orchards, very curious symptoms manifested themselves. Climbing plants climbed more audaciously. Tufted plants became more tufted than ever. Shrubs became trees. Cereals, scarcely sown, showed their little green heads and gained in the same length of time as much in inches as formerly under the most favorable circumstances they had gained in fractions. Asparagus attained the height of several feet. The artichokes swelled to the size of melons, the melons to the size of pumpkins, the pumpkins to the size of gourds, the gourds to the size of the belfry bell, which measured in truth nine feet in diameter. The cabbages were bushes, and the mushrooms umbrellas. The fruits did not lag behind the vegetables. It required two persons to eat a strawberry, and four to consume a pear. The grapes also attained the enormous proportions of those so well depicted by Poussin in his return of the envoys to the promised land. It was the same with the flowers. Immense violets spread the most penetrating perfumes through the air. Exaggerated roses shone with the brightest colors. Lilies formed in a few days impenetrable copses. Geraniums, daisies, camellias, rhododendrons invaded the garden walks and stifled each other. And the tulips, those dear, lilacious plants so dear to the Flemish heart, what emotion they must have caused to their zealous cultivators. The worthy Van Bistren nearly fell over backwards one day on seeing in his garden an enormous tulipia jesneria, a gigantic monster 
whose cup afforded space to a nest for a whole family of robins. The entire town flocked to see this floral phenomenon, and renamed it the Tulipa Quicindonia. But alas, if these plants, these fruits, these flowers, grew visibly to the naked eye, if all the vegetables insisted on assuming colossal proportions, if the brilliancy of their colors and perfume intoxicated the smell and the sight, they quickly withered. The air which they absorbed rapidly exhausted them, and they soon died, faded and dried up. Such was the fate of the famous tulip, which after several days of splendor became emaciated and fell lifeless. It was soon the same with the domestic animals, from the house dog to the stable pig, from the canary in its cage to the turkey of the back court. It must be said that in ordinary times these animals were not less phlegmatic than their masters. The dogs and cats vegetated rather than lived. They never betrayed a wag of pleasure nor a snarl of wrath. Their tails moved no more than if they had been made of bronze. Such a thing as a bite or scratch from any of them had not been known from time immemorial. As for mad dogs, they were looked upon as imaginary beasts, like the griffins and the rest of the menagerie of the apocalypse. But what a change had taken place in a few months, the smallest incidents of which we are trying to reproduce. Dogs and cats began to show teeth and claws. Several executions had taken place after reiterated offenses. A horse was seen for the first time to take his bit in his teeth and rush through the streets of Quiquendone. An ox was observed to precipitate itself with lowered horns upon one of his herd. An ass was seen to turn himself over with his legs in the air in the Place saint Genouf and bray as ass never brayed before. A sheep, actually a sheep, defended valiantly the cutlets within him from the butcher's knife. Von Tricasse, the burgomaster, was forced to make police regulations concerning the domestic animals, as seized with lunacy, they rendered the streets of Quiquendone unsafe. But alas, if the animals were mad, the men were scarcely less so. No age was spared by the scourge. Babies soon became quite insupportable, though till now so easy to bring up, and for the first time, Onera Syntax, the judge, was obliged to apply the rod to his youthful offspring. There was a kind of insurrection at the high school, and the dictionaries became formidable missiles in the classes. The scholars would not submit to be shut in, and besides, the infection took the teachers themselves, who overwhelmed the boys and girls with extravagant tasks and punishments. Another strange phenomenon occurred. All these Quiquendonians, so sober before, whose chief food had been whipped creams, committed wild excesses in their eating and drinking. Their usual regimen no longer sufficed. Each stomach was transformed into a gulf, and it became necessary to fill this gulf by the most energetic means. The consumption of the town was trebled. Instead of two repasts, they had six. Many cases of indigestion were reported. The counselor Nicholas could not satisfy his hunger. Van Tricasse found it impossible to assuage his thirst, and remained in a state of rabid semi-intoxication. In short, the most alarming symptoms manifested themselves, and increased from day to day. Drunken people staggered in the streets, 
and these were often citizens of high position. Dominique Custos, the physician, had plenty to do with the heartburns, inflammations, and nervous afflictions, which proved to what a strange degree the nerves of the people had been irritated. There were daily quarrels and altercations in the once deserted but now crowded streets of Quiquendone, for nobody could any longer stay at home. It was necessary to establish a new police force to control the disturbers of the public peace. A prison cage was established in the town hall and speedily became full, night and day, of refractory offenders. Commissary Passouf was in despair. A marriage was concluded in less than two months, such a thing had never been seen before. Yes, the son of Rupp the schoolmaster wedded the daughter of Augustine de Rovere, and that fifty-seven days only after he had petitioned for her hand and heart. Other marriages were decided upon, which, in old times, would have remained in doubt and discussion for years. The burgomaster perceived that his own daughter, the charming Suzel, was escaping from his hands. As for dear Tatamance, she had dared to sound Commissary Passouf on the subject of a union which seemed to her to combine every element of happiness, fortune, honor, youth. At last, to reach the depths of abomination, a duel took place. Yes, a duel with pistols, horse pistols, at seventy-five paces with ball cartridges. And between whom? Our readers will never believe. Between Monsieur Franz Nicholas the gentle angler, and between Simon Collaire, the wealthy banker's son. And the cause of the duel was the burgomaster's daughter, for whom Simon discovered himself to be fired with passion, and whom he refused to yield to the claims of an audacious rival. Chapter 11. In which the Quiquendonians adopt a heroic resolution. We have seen to what a deplorable condition the people of Quiquendone were reduced. Their heads were in a ferment. They no longer knew or recognized themselves. The most peaceable citizens had become quarrelsome. If you looked at them askance, they would speedily send you a challenge. Some let their mustaches grow, and several, the most belligerent, curled them up at the ends. This being their condition, the administration of the town and the maintenance of order in the streets became difficult tasks, for the government had not been organized for such a state of things. The burgomaster, that worthy Van Tricasse, whom we have seen so placid, so dull, so incapable of coming to any decision, the burgomaster became intractable. His house resounded with the sharpness of his voice. He made twenty decisions a day, scolding his officials, and himself enforcing the regulations of his administration. Ah, what a change! The amiable and tranquil mansion of the burgomaster, that good Flemish home, where was its former calm? What changes had taken place in your household economy? Madame von Tricasse had become acrid, whimsical, harsh. Her husband sometimes succeeded in drowning her voice by talking louder than she, but could not silence her. The petulant humor of this worthy dame was excited by everything. Nothing went right. The servants offended her every moment. Tatramance, her sister-in-law, who was not less irritable, replied sharply to her. Monsieur Van Tricasse naturally supported Lotchke, his servant, as is the case in all good households, and this permanently exasperated Madame, 
who constantly disputed, discussed, and made scenes with her husband. "'What on earth is the matter with us?' cried the unhappy burgomaster. "'What is this fire that is devouring us? Are we possessed with the devil? Ah, Madame Van Tricasse, Madame Van Tricasse, you will end by making me die before you, and thus violate all the traditions of the family.' the reader will not have forgotten the strange custom by which Monsieur Van Tricasse would become a widower and marry again, so as not to break the chain of descent. Meanwhile, this disposition of all minds produced other curious effects worthy of note. This excitement, the cause of which has so far escaped us, brought about unexpected physiological changes. Talents hitherto unrecognized betrayed themselves, aptitudes were suddenly revealed. Artists, before commonplace, displayed new ability. Politicians and authors arose. Orators proved themselves equal to the most arduous debates, and on every question inflamed audiences which were quite ready to be inflamed. From the sessions of the council, this movement spread to the public political meetings, and a club was formed at Quiquendone, whilst twenty newspapers, the Quiquendone Signal, the Quiquendone Impartial, the Quiquendone Radical, and so on, written in an inflammatory style, raise the most important questions. But what about, you will ask? Apropos of everything and of nothing. Apropos of the Ordinard Tower, which was falling, and which some wished to pull down and others to prop up. Apropos of the police regulations issued by the council, which some obstinate citizens threatened to resist apropos of the sweeping of the gutters, repairing the sewers, and so on. Nor did the enraged orators confine themselves to the internal administration of their town. Carried on by the current, they went further, and essayed to plunge their fellow citizens into the hazards of war. Quiquendone had had, for eight or nine hundred years, a casus belli of the best quality, but she had preciously laid it up like a relic, and there had seemed some probability that it would become a feat and no longer serviceable. This was what had given rise to the causus belli. It is not generally known that Quiquendone, in this cozy corner of Flanders, lies next to the little town of Vergamon. The territories of the two communities are contiguous. Well, in 1185, some time before Count Baldwin's departure to the Crusades, a Vergamon cow, not a cow belonging to a citizen, but a cow which was common property, let it be observed, audaciously ventured to pasture on the territory of Quiquendone. This unfortunate beast had scarcely eaten three mouths full, but the offense, the abuse, the crime, whatever you will, was committed and duly indicted, for the magistrates at that time had already begun to know how to write. We will take revenge at the proper moment said simply Natalis Van Tricasse, the thirty-second predecessor of the burgomaster of this story, and the Virgaminians will lose nothing by waiting. The Virgaminians were forewarned. They waited thinking without doubt that the remembrance of the offense would fade away with the lapse of time, and really for several centuries they lived on good terms with their neighbors of Quiquendone. But they counted without their hosts, or rather without this strange epidemic, which radically changing the character of the Quiquendonians aroused their dormant vengeance. It was at the club of the Rue Monstrelet that the truculent orator Chute, abruptly introducing the subject to his hearers, 
inflamed them with the expressions and metaphors used on such occasions. He recalled the offense, the injury which had been done to Quiquendone, and which a nation, jealous of its rights, could not admit as a precedent. He showed the insult to be still existing, the wound still bleeding. He spoke of certain special head-shakings on the part of the people of Virgamen, which indicated in what degree of contempt they regarded the people of Quiquendone. He appealed to his fellow citizens, who unconsciously, perhaps, had supported this mortal insult for long centuries. He adjured the children of the ancient town to have no other purpose than to obtain a substantial reparation, and lastly he made an appeal to all the living energies of the nation. With what enthusiasm these words, so new to Quiquendonian ears, were greeted, may be surmised but cannot be told. All the auditors rose, and with extended arms demanded war with loud cries. Never had the advocate shoot achieved such a success, and it must be avowed that his triumphs were not few. The burgomaster, the counselor, all the notabilities present at this memorable meeting would have vainly attempted to resist the popular outburst. Besides, they had no desire to do so, and cried as loud, if not louder than the rest, To the frontier! To the frontier! As the frontier was but three kilometers from the walls of Quiquendone, it is certain that the Virgaminians ran a real danger, for they might easily be invaded without having had time to look about them. Meanwhile, Joss Liefrink, the worthy chemist, who alone had preserved his senses on this grave occasion, tried to make his fellow citizens comprehend that guns, cannons, and generals were equally wanting to their design. They replied to him, not without many impatient gestures, that these generals, cannons, and guns would be improvised, that the right and love of country sufficed and rendered a people irresistible. Hereupon the burgomaster himself came forward, and in a sublime harangue made short work of those pusillanimous people who disguised their fear under a veil of prudence, which veil he tore off with a patriotic hand. At this sally it seemed as if the hall would fall in under the applause. The vote was eagerly demanded, and was taken amid acclamations. The cries of, To Virgamen! To Virgamen! redoubled. The burgomaster then took it upon himself to put the armies in motion, and in the name of the town he promised the honors of a triumph, such as was given in the times of the Romans to that one of its generals who should return victorious. Meanwhile, Joss Liefrink, who was an obstinate fellow, and did not regard himself as beaten, though he really had been, insisted on making another observation. He wished to remark that the triumph was only accorded at Rome to those victorious generals who had killed five thousand of the enemy. Well, well, cried the meeting deliriously, and as the population of the town of Virgamon consists of but three thousand five hundred and seventy-five inhabitants, it would be difficult, unless the same person was killed several times. But they did not let the luckless logician finish, and he was turned out, hustled and bruised. Citizens, said Polmacher the grocer, who usually sold groceries by retail, whoever this cowardly apothecary may have been, I engage by myself to kill five thousand Virgaminians, if you'll accept my services. Five thousand five hundred, cried a yet more resolute patriot. Six thousand six hundred, retorted the grocer. 
Seven thousand, cried Jean Arbidec, the confectioner of the Rue Hemling, who was on the road to a fortune by making whipped creams. Adjudged, exclaimed the burgomaster von Tricasse, on finding that no one else rose on the bid. And this was how Jean Orbedeck, the confectioner, became general-in-chief of the forces of Quiquendone. Chapter 12, in which Eugene the assistant gives a reasonable piece of advice, which is eagerly rejected by Dr. Ox. Well, master, said Eugene next day, as he poured the pails of sulfuric acid into the troughs of the great battery. Well, resumed Dr. Ox, was I not right? See to what not only the physical developments of a whole nation, but its morality, its dignity, its talents, its political sense have come? It is only a question of molecules. No doubt, but... But? Do you not think that matters have gone far enough, and that these poor devils should not be excited beyond measure? No, no, cried the doctor. No, I will go on to the end. As you will, master. The experiment, however, seems to me conclusive, and I think it time to... To? To close the valve. You'd better, cried Dr. Ox. If you attempt it, I'll throttle you. End of chapter 12 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com